Je suis David Belmore, artiste magicien de la Société du Cosmos. J'ai oublié encore émissaire. Je suis David Belmore, artiste magicien, émissaire de la Société du Cosmos. You are listening to Into This, the podcast where I get to explore contemporary art through conversations with artists, curators, writers, collectors, students, and more. I'm your host, Mark Chris Wilson. Welcome to the third episode of the first season. As you heard, David Belmar is not only a painter, he's also the emissary on Earth of the Society of Cosmos. That's a nice title, isn't it? In this episode, he shares with us the way in which he approaches art making and his intentions to create a generational bridge through paintings. Please share your thoughts with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or in the website intothispodcast.com. We're excited to hear what's your opinion of the show, and if you like it, please let your friends know about it. Just before starting the show, uh, I just want to let you know that this conversation was recorded in two sessions. In the second session, I had a cold, so if my voice sounds a little bit funny, then that's why. Okay, here's my conversation with painter David Bermat. I hope you enjoy. I was born in Trois-Rivières, near Trois-Rivières in Louisville, actually. And then um, I moved to get to know most of my childhood and adolescence. When when you come to Montreal? Uh, 19. I was 19 when I, I moved to Montreal. Okay, and f that was for school, or your family yeah. moved here? Uh, yeah, it was for school. For mm -hmm. school? Yeah. And how was growing up in Gatineau? Well, it's a nice place to raise children. It's a beautiful environment, but uh, it changed over the years. Now, culturally, is more. it's more nice. Yeah. But as a teenager, it didn't feel that way. So that's why I really needed to move out. What your parents do or used to do if uh, they retired? No, no, they're, they're not. both still working. Yeah. And my mom uh, teaches police officer in a CEGEP. She's a criminologist. Oh, wow. And my father is a psychologist and he teaches in the university as well. My mom is not an artist uh, for two cents, so she has a hard time understanding the whole social culture behind it. My dad's more, more of an artist, so he can relate more to, to what I do. Okay, so they used to expose you, or he used to expose you to a lot of art while growing up? Uh, not particularly. It's just uh, if I express interest, he, he would be interested as well. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. and, and do you have siblings? Yeah, I've got two brothers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One brothers. younger, one older. Mm -hmm. uh, they both work for Hydro-Québec. Okay. So no artistic no inclination artistic that much. influences. Mm -hmm. But somewhere... Uh, in their younger years, did you know that you wanted to be an artist already, or that came after? Uh, I think uh, I, I've known since uh, I was probably 13, 14 years old. And do you remember one specific, you know, moment or or, or something that happened that made you realize, okay, this is what I'm gonna do? Uh, I always, like, I remember in the primary school there was a kid that drew better than everyone else. Yeah. And everyone was always impressed by his drawings, and I, I really enjoyed them. And I, I remember that drove me to to pursue that, like that that feeling of recognition through others with something that you make, right. something that's special, that's that's yours. Yeah. And I think that that kind of drove me in that direction. But I, I always felt that that what that's what I wanted to do. I, I used to take buses to go to Montreal. 
and see exhibitions alone just just because that's what I was into yeah like uh, when I was a teenager and once that you express that interest to your family how do they react they always supported me I guess yeah, yeah. they they were scared because it's not a, a world that's super uh, easy to live in yeah even my art teacher in in, in uh, high school told me like uh, don't go study arts yeah. uh, you should definitely go do something else that makes that's gonna make you travel the world like become a a diplomat or something but uh -huh. don't go study arts you'll you'll live poorly and you'll have a shitty life and I still felt that it was my calling sure mm -hmm. yeah you went for it I, yeah. I think that's admirable that people follow their passions no matter no matter what mm -hmm. it's the same situation with my sister she's also an artist and mm -hmm. Everybody knows that it's a hard world as an artist, especially her as a dancer. But still, she's happy, she's mm -hmm. doing it. But anyways, let me ask you this question. Do you feel that if you would have had a little bit of more um, different opinion from your family, they're saying, think about it more or something, you would have changed or it was something that it was set? I think uh, the more people tell me not to do something, the more I'll want to do it. <laughs> so... Uh, Uh, yeah, they would have been super against me going at it. I think I would have went even Anyways. harder at it. I remember being in the basement of a friend when I was in college and uh, hearing the father of my friend speaking with him and telling him, you know, that guy in the basement, like, he's, he's not going to amount to nothing in life. He's a bum. Like, why do you hang out with him? And I thought, ah, you know what? I'll, I'll show you. I'll, I'll become someone. I'm not. A lazy bum. I I work hard and I, I'll I'll reach for my goals. And I think uh, since that day on, that's one of the main thing that drove me to succeed. I think that's pretty admirable that you can draw motivation from something so negative. Yeah, well, I mean, you either do that, cry or... about it, or mm. pick yourself up and mm -hmm. yeah, sure, go for it. Yeah. Then you moved to Montreal when you're 19. You came to to uh, Concordia University to start the uh, fine arts. Yeah, bachelor bachelor's. program. Yeah. yeah, and that took you how long? Six years. Six years. Yeah. Is that normal? No, but <laughs> I do know a lot of people that took like four, five, six. I think is I'm. I don't know many people that took six years. Why? Uh, part of it is because I, I was always working. Like part-time jobs. Sometimes I worked like full-time jobs while studying, so I could take less classes. And I also felt that it's not a program that's gonna have a job at the end. So might as well take the time to experience, to try the facilities, meet people. The longer you stay at university, the more people you'll connect with. Better now. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's actually pretty smart. So when you were in CJEP, deciding that you were going to be an artist. Yeah. I studied art in Sejep as yeah, well. That's yeah, right, that's mm -hmm. right. So probably before Sejep, when you were thinking mm -hmm. probably about university already, mm -hmm. why was that connection of, I want to be an artist, university? Let me ask you this. Is there other routes to get to be an artist? Oh, the, the, there are for sure, uh, but there are way longer routes, mm -hmm. even though my route doesn't seem that short in the end. Like in six years bachelor is a pretty mm -hmm. long route. Uh, I, I just think that the way the art world works for contemporary art is you need to have a bachelor or, well, now it's a master's for sure. Like, bachelor is it's, it's kind of hard to uh, 
to navigate the art world with just with just a bachelor like somehow galleries or creators won't see you as a, a serious artist or it will take a longer time like there's i know artists that didn't finish high school and are are artists now and having a pretty good career mm-hmm. um as career goes in quebec uh, but they're one in a million person yeah it doesn't happen a lot right so university is definitely something that it will yeah it frames yeah. the art world mm-hmm. yeah okay Okay, if you so want to fit in, yeah. you, if you want to, like, if you want to be an engineer, you have to go to university. I feel like for artists, it's that. Yeah, for sure. If you were able to go back in time mm-hmm. and talk to uh, yourself when you were deciding that you want you wanted mm-hmm. to go to university, what would you say? Uh, good luck. Yeah. And work harder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard world. It's a very hard world, and to to succeed, you have to work hard. Yeah. And you have to be lucky as well. So that's why I say good luck, because you, you you never know who you're going to meet and when. And sometimes you're going to produce an artwork that is going to resonate with people at the proper time. But if you do it two months earlier or two years later, it won't have the same impact mm-hmm. because the art world moves fast. So I don't know what I would say to someone who's just starting. I I don't think I would recommend it somehow because it's a really hard life. I think you have to have a very strong core to be able to stand uh, your ground and follow your your path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't know if I would uh, recommend it. Whatever your area of interest is, either professional or otherwise, sacrifices and hardship are usually present when striving for greatness. But, of course, experience and hardship is not a warranty of success. While for someone like me, frustration, anger, or discomfort might be expressed as yelling into a pillow, I keep wondering if for an artist, those experiences feed into the array of feelings and emotions that later on can be displayed in form of a painting, sculpture, or any other art form. For someone to put up with such a struggle, there needs to be a set of strong convictions. I wanted to get into that with a bit. Here it is. So the motivations, why do you do this stuff? I guess when I was in my early 20s, uh, I really wanted to be uh, rich and famous. Like I was full of confidence entering the school in the art world and thinking I'll be the one that makes it. I'll be the one that that goes fast and that that's the star prodigy. And of course you grow older and that didn't happen. So you start thinking, okay, well, Rich and famous, maybe not, but maybe maybe I can pass to the art history. Maybe I can uh, make work that are going to resonate with future generations. And I feel that's more where I am at now, where what that my goal is probably to just talk to my contemporaries, but also to have a establish a dialogue with future generations. Mm-hmm. That that's something that that interests me. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll see how that works, because... <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about the dialogue that you would like to initiate with future generations? Uh, yeah. I've actually, I've been working on a big role painting project where I, I, I paint all my paintings or most of my paintings on the same canvas. And I'll try to keep going at it for as long as I can or as long as the material can uh, 
sustain it. And I feel that by keeping working on the same project, uh, on the same specific material project, mm -hmm. it's going to enable me to establish a more personal or more intense focus on the art I'm doing and what I try to say to other people. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's going to be the bridge to to other generations. Okay. Uh, for what I'm trying to say, it's questions of mysticism and yeah, uh, exactly. spirituality, but also through a lot of humor, um, trying to uh, feel the pulse of our time and paint it. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about the religious and the mysticism part of your art, like what you want to communicate? I feel I connect with images. Uh, when I scavenge images, I, I really connect with some. And when I find two images that suddenly uh, attract each other, mm -hmm. uh, I try to, uh, to combine them in a way where they will reach each other's essence and uh, magnify themselves. And through that, I feel that I create magic. Okay. So I call those images sigils. Uh, there's a, a word from uh, Morrison, uh, who's a, a comic artist and a, a writer, and he does a lot of stuff. But he he calls them hypersigils, his, uh, his comic book. So they become canalization okay. of, a, of an energy, of an idea, where you, when you release it in, in space, in time, uh, they can actually uh, create whatever magic they were meant to do. I don't really know necessarily what kind of spells mm -hmm. I'm trying to, to send, but uh, I know I have to send them. Okay. And they are directed towards somebody specifically? Uh, no, no, I think they're directed towards the world, like yeah. to, towards the public and to my own brain, I guess. Right. I, I'm, I'm trying to put images where words I cannot apply. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is something that is interesting for me too, because every time that I go to a gallery or museum, and I see a piece of art, I always wonder if the artist is thinking about what am I going to think? What am I going to feel with the piece? Is it, that right? For sure, but I'm not trying to direct this into something that someone will say, oh, that's supposed to make me feel sad, mm -hmm. or oh, that's supposed to make me think about apartheid. Mm -hmm. Or I'm trying to just leave it really open. Right. And sometimes uh, I'll reanalyze some of my work and say, oh, that was probably about that or yeah. that was probably about that. But I'm not trying to uh, shove it down your throat. Mm -hmm. Cool. And when you say that you are sending spells, so what do you what do you consider yourself in uh, this in this case? I'm an artist magician, emissary for the Society of Cosmos. Okay. The idea behind it is that I, I was abducted by aliens And uh, coming back from that encounter, I now have the obligation through telepathic communication with those aliens, which uh, I'm not sure are aliens. They might be from Earth, but from a different parallel universe. I don't know. I, I leave it quite open also. I, I just have fun playing with those ideas and what's true, what's not true. Mostly it's not true, but it's just fun to get out there and to... Right. To say. So this is like a persona you're creating? Yeah, yeah. Like creating a, a fiction. Yeah, a fiction character. Yeah. 
Because I, I know that there are artists who create a adjacent personality to them. Mm -hmm. And is, is it something similar to that? I, I guess so, but I, I don't detach myself from it. So it's yeah. you. It's, it's, yeah. this, is, this is you. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about where this idea comes from? It's just because I, I have a hard time writing artist statements or uh, writing for grants and stuff. So I decided to just have fun with the whole process and turn it upside down and do something that I like to do, which is jokes uh, and playful uh, writing. And through that, uh, I feel like I'm able to access or explain my work in a way that makes sense to me, at least. Or I mean, that, that's a pretty good way to turn like a, like a hard situation into something more fun. Yeah, but it's also shooting yourself in the foot because then people well, don't really take you seriously unless you do it for a long time. Then I guess it will work. But so that's what now, you're trying to do. Yeah, like, yeah, are, yeah. are you committed to to the idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll keep I'll keep playing with it and I'll keep adding more stories behind mm -hmm. the 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 life that I I have as mm -hmm. an artist magician. Because mm -hmm. what I've noticed is that what gives artists more validations or legitimation mm -hmm. is the time, the time that you spend doing one thing. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's why I, I do the role as well. I, through, only through time will it become important. If you just do it once, then it's kind of a, a gimmick. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Or if you do it too much, it's a gimmick as well. So it's hard to find where to stop or where to continue. This long canvas. So how long is it? And how long have you been working on it? Uh, it's 127 feet okay um, and 10 feet high and wow. I've been working on it for uh, about two years so what I did is paint on it one year uh, showed it uh, in a gallery I'm gonna paint on it another year and try to have another exhibition at least once or twice a year depending on where I show it in, in artist centers and things like that right where do you show it which gallery? Uh, I showed it at Persian Laundry in March. So how was that experience at uh, the gallery? Oh, it was great. Everyone was super, super helpful. Uh, I actually uh, had to unroll the roll of canvas uh, uh, in the Home Depot parking lot to show it to uh, Ginny Riddle, right. uh, who was the curator at the time. Uh -huh. And uh, she came jogging and saw it and said, yeah, like I, I really enjoy it. We should we should do something so they they gave me a a, a great way to to, sh to show to show my work okay so they helped you with the curation yeah right and do, do you have any ideas as of like what would you like to do with it if it becomes super you know big do you have any curatorial ideas for the role well each year it's kind of uh, morphing and changing so last year when i did it the title was uh, magic or the philosophy of desire mm -hmm. And uh, now this this year it's uh, Rencontre du Troisième Titre, so Encounter of the Third Type. And last year with the Magic or the, or the Philosophy of Desire, it was more about magic mm -hmm. and uh, sigils and things like that. Right. And uh, this year it's more about how extraterrestrials are feeding me images that I have to paint. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense with the uh, the whole idea that we talked about yeah yeah because of the physicality of your work mm -hmm. like the actual form of it do you think that it is tough to sell 
Oh, well, yeah, if I work on it for my whole lifetime, it's yeah. definitely going to be hard to sell. Yeah. yeah. The whole idea behind it at the beginning was that the whole series of painting is never complete if it's not shown together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used the analogy of a poem and poetry. So when you read a book of poems, like a, I don't, I forget the words for that, a recueil de poésie. Mm-hmm. Um, each poem is important to the whole ensemble or to the whole comprehension of the of the work. Mm-hmm. And if you take a few out or if you take one out, then you lose part of its integrity. So the whole idea behind the role of the paintings is that every time you see it, you have the whole experience. Right. If I start cutting it to sell it, then I I just defeated the purpose. Of course. Mm-hmm. So it's a an exhibition that you unroll everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. It's always complete. The way in which the art industry works is not a very easy thing to understand. It is composed by overlapping subcultures that the one thing they have in common is their belief in art, but not much more. These subcultures can be roughly defined in six groups. Artists, dealers, curators, critics, collectors, and auction house consultants. They have very different roles, and more often than not, the activities of one group can be very alien for another subculture. For instance, famous conceptual artist John Baldessari compares an artist entering an art fair with a teenager walking into her parents' room while they're having sex. I asked David to share his views on the first contact of an emerging artist with commercial galleries. You probably had a lot of shows uh, while you were in school, right? Mm, I mean, some, some, some exhibitions, some, yeah. some exhibitions, mm-hmm. I know. So from when you were there and then when you leave school, mm-hmm. how that communication with galleries happen? Uh, it depends of the galleries and the artist. Uh, I had shows, uh, group shows, where the artist would go to the gallerist and say, oh, we're interested in doing that project, would you want to help us? And the gallerist would say yes, and then after that they would approach an artist and say, hey, we would really, we enjoyed your work in our show, we would like to represent you. These things happen. There's other way around where gallerists will just approach an artist after a show at school and say, oh, I am interested in your work. I've seen your show uh, at, at school and I really like it. I would like to represent you. Mm-hmm. And I've had other galleries tell me that uh, an emerging artist starts at 35 years old. Uh, I have been told that when I was 24. And so basically told me to come and see me in 10 years. That's, oh, really? Yeah, so that that's, that's kind of a... I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. I understand that gallerists don't want to take chances that much with young artists because you don't know how serious they are and uh, if they're committed enough to continue. But at the same time, if you don't help the the young artists coming out, then a lot of them won't make it. What is the risk for the gallery, though? They look uh, unprofessional if they take you as a young artist and then drop you mm. two years later. Mm. Like, they won't look like a proper gallerist mm. and also if you your work doesn't match up the expectations then they also look bad as a gallerist even though they keep you in their 
écurie, they are stable, yeah, yeah. roster. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you when you, you get told to come see me in 10 years, it kind of feels like saying, do all the work, get shown, struggle hard, and then when you're ready to get picked, I'll make 50% of your pay. That's that's <laughs> how I see it sometimes, and it becomes a bit uh, irritating, right? Yeah. I'll let you struggle, I'll, and then when people are starting to take notice and to uh, really want to buy your work, then that's where I'll come in and swoop you up. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of a... a Bitch lab, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. So it sounds pretty tough. Uh, it's hard and not to get cynical. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to. That must be tough just to keep going, keep yourself motivated somehow. So I was wondering if you can talk about how do you do it? How do you keep going and keep a positive attitude and keep just moving forward? Well, I guess art is uh, what drives me. Nothing else makes me feel the way I do than when I make art. Like, when I make art, I, I, it's like a drug. I, I get high off of it. And if I didn't do it, and I, I notice because sometimes I, I can spend nine months without doing art, uh, but as soon as I get back to it, my humor change, I get more happy, uh, things start going well, and, yeah, not doing art, I, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. It's cathartic. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. When you are creating, and this is this is probably one of those cliche questions, is there something that you can draw inspiration from or that you know that sort of sparks your creativity or is just like work, 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 and then something's going to happen with it? Um, like for paintings, now I use a collage as a base, base form. So I guess my habit would be to feed myself of images until some of them resonate with me, and then I'll take it out. And I'll do that for a long time before I even start collaging. Like, I'll just accumulate images that are uh, resonating with me, feeling uh, their integral uh, meaning, I guess. And then I'll put them together, and by mixing them together, that's where that's where the magic happens for me. So I don't have a special place to do it. I don't have a, a special time to do it. It's mostly a, a overtime the accumulation than a specific time or a specific place. Makes me think of the uh, the ready made. Yeah, the ready made. The yeah. data movement. Yeah. Do you do you relate to that too? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like I mean, the data is like one of the most influential mm-hmm. movement out there, mm-hmm. and. I, I think I'm, I'm super influenced by the idea that everything can be art. You just have to find a way to uh, to make it art. Well, that's the role of the artist, to break boundaries. Of course. Hey, here Marks again. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with painter David Belmar. You can find links and photos of his work on the website intothispodcast.com. And once you're there... Why not sharing a comment with us? We really like hearing from you. All right, let's go back to the show. What does the concept of success mean to you? Uh, success to me is being able to do what you love and having the time to do it uh, and the mental space mm-hmm. uh, for it. 
so that doesn't involve any sort of compromises for other things. No, my mom asked me to paint her a painting with uh, with the uh, what's it called a mouton. Uh, a mouton is a sheep. I told her I I was gonna try and couldn't couldn't do it. It doesn't come from me. I'm not a designer. I don't take commands or commands. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you ask me for to have that special green in your living room that you want to have in the painting, I'm not gonna do it. Like if you would like some of my work, that's the work I did. But I'm not not even for my mom. So uh, good luck <laughs> if you want to ask me. <laughs> yeah, I really try to be uh, uh, genuine. Genuine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's very mm-hmm. valuable. I, but I think it's necessary as an artist, but a lot of people don't see it that way. In general, I think in life you can see through poses. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just doing something because you want to get something out of it. It's pretty easy to see. Mm-hmm. And I go back to say that art is pretty romantic. And I feel that's one of the things that mm-hmm. you really get basically naked in front of everybody and say, this is what this way I am. And in terms of validation, mm-hmm. where do you get that? Uh, from your peers. If you create art, you usually are surrounded by other artists. So if uh, my fellow friends, artists appreciate the work that I do, then that's that's the most validation I'll need. For sure, if uh, a big gallery or a small gallery or uh, a Biennale decides to show my work, then that's also a very big validation. But uh, it starts from the community of artists. I think that's that's where you want to be uh, appreciated, I think. Okay, most. great. Yeah, for sure. Stepping into the business of art, mm-hmm. is that something that you think of? I, I, I don't like thinking about money in art, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's why I do the whole role of painting, too. Great. Okay. Like, like, do something that's so ridiculously big that you cannot really sell it. Right. It's, I guess part of it is I don't really like thinking about money. Okay. Yeah, I struggle uh, yeah. to do my art, but I, I'm through when I do it. But in that sense, though, do you think that it's very important to know how to market yourself? To do some real work on... Self-promotion. Yeah, self-promotion or, you know, meeting people, Mm -hmm. talking to people that are involved in the art world and... And social media as well. Yeah. I think it's important, but it depends on what you want to achieve. It really depends where you feel you want to be. Like if you want to be an artist that's super involved with communities or if you want to be uh, more recluse in your studio and work on your thing and that's that's enough for you to be happy, then you don't really need to be a social artist or uh, go to every vernissage and shake hands. But I feel like if you want to pierce the art market, then you don't have a choice but to become a social artist. Mm. And otherwise no one will see your work and no one will know about you. Do you enjoy that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy it. I think it's uh, that part of the deal and I'm a pretty social person. Yeah, because I, I know people that have changed their ideas of doing one work or another depending on that, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, saying I am not that person that is going to be out there all the mm-hmm. time yeah. talking to somebody and I just don't want to do it. I feel it's part of the part of the job. Other people feel that part of the job is writing a lot of uh, submissions and they're right, but that's the part that I don't like. So since I don't do what I don't like, 
I don't do it. Yeah. Probably I have to start liking it <laughs> soon, though. I'm pretty sure that you've, and I know, that you think a lot about how the art world is managed and how it works. Mm -hmm. Have you found some things that you would say, if this were done differently, this would move towards a different direction, well, as in to be more maybe accessible? The art world is a weird beast. Like in Quebec, you have uh, the artist-run centers that were made at the beginning so that artists could do more creative work without having the shackles of sure. uh, having to sell your artwork. Mm -hmm. So those artist-run centers were the, the place in the world that there's the most. And what it did at the beginning was to make emerge a lot of good artists, but now the way they work is that they'll usually accept mid-career to emerging artists, but like I said, some emerging artists are only at 35 years old, have already a few shows. So uh, they end up showing artists that already are represented by uh, commercial galleries. So it becomes mm -hmm. an incestuous cycle where the commercial galleries get more exposure for the artists through the artist-run centers, and the artist-run centers get more recognition through the artists that are represented by the gallerist. So it ends up always being the same kind of people showing everywhere. So the visibility for a young artist, as opposed to someone that's already been able to pierce that uh, that barrier, is is close to none. Uh, because art is a, is a market of consumption, mm -hmm. and if the collectors influence who gets shown, and who gets shown influence who gets picked, who get picked again. So it's a, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you said at the beginning. It's like yeah. a very incestuous cycle. Cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you would change that. What would you do? Uh, I give. I think I would give back more power to the artist, but I don't know. I don't know how to to do that because to be an artist. Most of the artists nowadays say that they pass more time on their writing uh, abilities than their actual work. Writing for grants? Yeah, writing for grants, writing for uh, application to uh, go uh, for a residency or to go for a show in, in artist-run centers. Yeah. Then they actually do pass on the actual artwork. So I guess I would try to simplify the application for grants and the application for artist-run centers, where instead of having to write two, three pages on your work, mm -hmm. you would just show images sure. and like a little paragraph of what of what you you do. The the way the system works right now, it it, it facilitates good writers, but not necessarily mm. good artists. And and can you sell pieces there? No, but they give you. Um, money for exhibiting there. They oh. give you uh, Carfac uh, money, which is uh, around $2,000. Mm -hmm. And they keep the piece? or No, no, no. Oh, okay. Instead of renting a, a place to show your work, they actually give you money to show your work. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> no, it, it sounds uh, very, very good. Oh, for sure. But until yeah. you understand... Uh, that's right. The, yeah. Are you part of any of those? No. I don't know. I, I should probably, but it's hard to get invested. Okay. Like you had, you'd have to go every few months in, a, in an assembly, think about what the art center is about, mm -hmm. what you want to do with it. I have other things to do. I already work five days a week. I have my studio practice. I don't have much more time to spend going and do benevolence. Yeah. 
For the last segment of the podcast, I asked my guest David Belmer if he wanted to share a story with me. Besides the fact that I love listening to stories, I believe that there's a lot of intimacy in the stories that we choose to share with people. And I really appreciate this from my guests. Just a quick warning. The next segment contains material that can be disturbing for sensible listeners. Here we go. After college, I went to travel for nearly a year uh, by myself and sometimes with friends. And uh, I stayed at one point uh, in a little town in Vietnam and uh, near China Beach. It's in central Vietnam. And uh, local people don't know how to swim very well over there. And they don't want to get uh, tanned. They want to be as white as they can be. So they would go swimming with their jeans and a shirt. Plus, they don't really know how to swim well, so they try to just not go very far. Am I speaking too close to the, no, the microphone? No, no, okay. I stayed for like two, two months at that place, and um, one day I, I saw the wind, I saw the waves, and I thought, now for sure someone's gonna drown today. Like it's dangerous conditions, but there was a lot of people on the beach. I, I went for my morning swim, came back and a lady I talked to every day that sold uh, little figurines on the beach told me like, hey David, did you hear? Uh, some people drowned uh, over there. Uh, you should check it out. She was super excited about it somehow. And I, I said, okay, I'll go check it out. And uh, I went on that part of the beach and saw um, uh, they have little boats, like I call them coconut boats. I don't know what they are. They're round boats uh, with a long stick to uh, to go to the bottom of the sea. And uh, there were there was two of them, uh, little boats, poking around, searching, and one lifeguard going around at the sea, and probably like 60 people on the beach looking at them. And I knew that there was like. Uh, people missing and drowned in the in theirs and I thought like well, I'm a pretty good swimmer could probably go help even though I don't speak Vietnamese or anything so I start swimming toward one of the boat and the guy calls me and says like there's someone down there like you go for it, go for it and uh, I, I went and picked up uh, the body of a 19 year old girl that was a bit bloated swam back to the surface it was too deep so i didn't touch the the ground and i was struggling to to keep her head out of the water and her mouth was uh, foaming a lot mm -hmm. uh, so i i was drinking a bit of water as well so it was uh, it was a very weird experience and i was struggling to bring her up to the boat because the boat is higher than you are when you're like in the waters Finally, the lifeguard was able to come toward me and help me. Uh, and then he went in the boat, he started to do the, the reanimation while I slowly went back to the beach. I, I sat in shock on the beach because I was not, I, I, I knew I was going to try and help, but I didn't think I would be the one to find the, 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 the poor girl. And yeah. So. After that, people came and congratulated me and thank you for because no, not many people I think would would go for it. Um, and after that, I went 
after the amb ambulance came in and took the girl away, I went to see the the lifeguard uh, to uh, to shake his hand because I felt I felt like we 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 shared something like we bonded over that tra tragic experience, and uh, he just looked very mad at me, and I I don't know I, I felt that the I was kind of uh, stealing his uh, his glory or his uh, his his light from him. I, I, I was the white person, the white savior somehow. Well, I was just trying to do something nice. Maybe he was pissed because I had no training and I could have drowned myself. But I, I don't think I was close. I was confident in my capabilities. But I, in the end, I, it taught me that uh, whatever you do, there's no uh, white or black. It's always gray. Even when you try to do the best you can, you'll still uh, make other people f feel bad somehow. Uh, whatever choice you make, mm -hmm. it's really uh, ingrained that in me that you, whatever you do, you'll always do. do you always wrong someone. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's some sort of uh, another way to realize that sometimes just life is not fair. And that is just the way it is, and mm -hmm. accept it or not, is that's the way it goes. Yeah, that's a pretty intense story. Yeah, I've got a few. That's pretty. That's pretty good conversation. Yeah, I I really appreciate you coming here. Thank you for and, having me. And uh, I want to wish you the best of success, everything you do, mm -hmm. and you know, wait around. Yeah. And that is the end of this episode. Thanks so much for sticking around. This episode of Into This Podcast was produced by Raul Aguilar and me, Marx Riz Wilson. The sound design was done by the one and only Milton Matthew. The music is an original creation by Master Gajo and Metzger Dark Ambient. Victor Garibay is a visual designer. And of course, thanks to David Belmar for being such a good guest. You can find more information about the collaborators in the website, intothispodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back in three weeks with another episode of Into This Podcast. Cheers. Talk shit, no bullshit. <laughs>